The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. If you caught yesterday's episode, then you know that for the next few weeks, we're trying something new. We've made a list of the 22 most popular book bites from the last 12 months, as chosen by our 25,000 plus Next Big Idea app users. Every weekday, we're gonna share one of those book bites with you. 22 book bites to supercharge your curiosity in 2022. What is a book bite, you may be wondering. They are book summaries, the key insights from the very best new books. You can read a book in the time it takes to braid your best friend's hair. But the range of insights they contain is pretty extraordinary. Insights about everything from personal productivity to particle physics, business fundamentals to neuroscience hacks. They'll help you make sense of the world of today and understand the forces that will shape the world of tomorrow. Today, number 21. Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone by Sarah Jaffe. Back in the day, there seemed to be a general consensus that work is hard, unpleasant, as it should be. As our grandfathers put it, if it was supposed to be fun, they wouldn't call it work. But in the past few decades, something has shifted. Tell me if this sounds familiar. When you are following your passions and you're doing something that you love, you're more willing to be giving all the time 100%, 110%, and going above and beyond. I did it. I found the job that I, that I really love, and it took me a long time. It was not easy to get here, but I made it, and you can too. That's an ad for the job site monster.com. And the message is one we've all heard a million times before. Find your calling, do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. There's just one problem, according to Sarah. The labor of love, she says, is a con. For one thing, it can make people who don't love what they do feel like failures. Worse, the labor of love con can be used to justify long hours, low pay, and unreasonable sacrifices. In Work Won't Love You Back, Sarah, who's a veteran labor reporter, shows how we can eradicate the do-what-you-love myth and find new, healthier ways to think about work. Here's Sarah with five big ideas from her book. Hi, I'm Sarah Jaffe. I'm a journalist and a reporting fellow at Type Media Center, and I'm the author of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt, and my new book is Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. And I am here to share with you a few ideas from my book. The first big insight from my book is that work sucks. And work sucks because the vast majority of us are doing it at bottom, not because we want to find fulfillment or meaning in our lives. We're doing it because we have to make a living. It sucks because most of the time we're making money for someone else. In other words, it sucks because of exploitation. 
Exploitation is not just extra bad work or a job you particularly dislike. These are the delusions foisted on us by the labor of love myth. Exploitation is wage labor under capitalism, where the work you put in produces more value than the wages you are paid are worth. Exploitation is the process by which someone else, you know, your boss, profits from your labor. And this is true whether you're a nanny making $10 an hour, allowing your employer to make much more money at her higher paid job, or a programmer at Google making $100,000 a year or more, while Google rakes in over $7 billion. The reality of work under capitalism is that the worker doesn't control much of anything while on the job. That fact doesn't change if the job is more or less pleasant, if wages increase by a dollar an hour or $10 an hour. The concept of alienation isn't about your feelings. It's about whether or not you have the power to decide where and how hard you will work and whether you will control the thing you make or the service you provide. As long as we have to make a living, work is always going to kind of suck. The second insight is that the idea we ought to like our work is actually a relatively new concept. The way we work and the way we think about the way we work is something that has changed over time with new developments in the capitalist system. And so while humans have long been presumed to do some kinds of work for the love of it, that's an expectation that has grown and spread from a couple of types of work to pretty much everything. The idea that we work in order to find fulfillment rather than a paycheck wasn't particularly widespread even just a couple of generations ago. When you're digging coal or building cars for a living, no one expects you to do it because you like it. You did it because it paid decently or because it paid at all. Yet these days, the idea that we work because we like it has become common sense, as those industrial jobs are harder and harder to find and are replaced by service and caring work jobs in most cases. The process of outsourcing or automating those jobs out of expensive locations like the U.S. and Western Europe has shifted the economy and thus the workplace in those rich countries and resulted in employers seeking out those very human traits that industrial capitalism had tried so hard to strip away from the workplace. Those human traits, creativity, people skills, caring, are what employers are seeking to exploit in the jobs we're supposed to love. Exercising them is what is supposed to make work less miserable, but instead it's helped work to worm its way deeper into every facet of our lives. Are you expected to answer emails on weekends, in the evening? All of those things come from this expectation that we love our jobs. Which brings us to insight number three, caring work is low paid because we expect women to do it for free. For millennia, caring work was women's work, and with the advent of capitalism and wage labor, even though plenty of women also went off to work in the factories and the mills from the beginning, women were expected to do the work in the home. And when they left the home to go to get a paid job, the jobs that were considered respectable for women to take were ones that were in some way related to or derived from the work that they did in the home, teaching, for example, or nursing. When women were recruited for those jobs, they were paid less, assuming that they were attached to a man, a father or a husband, whose real work paid the real bills. Those expectations shape where and how women work today. 
but they also shape work for everyone else, as women's work is now a much bigger part of the paid economy. In the U.S., the fields adding the most jobs these days are nursing, food service, and home health care. All of them are gendered jobs where the worker is expected to care for other people. These kinds of service positions draw on the skills presumed to come naturally to women. It's seen as an extension of the caring work that they do for their families. And it's worth noting that much of this work is the essential or key work that we heard so much about when the pandemic began. These are the people who are expected to risk their lives to keep going to work in order for the rest of us to survive. In these jobs, workers are expected to provide service with a smile or genuine heartfelt care. They are expected to put themselves second to the feelings and needs of their customers or charges. So what about the men? Insight number four is that creative work too is undervalued because it's supposed to be the work of geniuses who do the work for its own reward. If caring work is familial love based in the all-sacrificing love of the mother, then creative work is something like romantic love based in a different kind of self-sacrifice and voluntary commitment that is expected on some level to love you back. That lone artist in the studio splattering paint everywhere, unwilling to leave even to eat, compelled by his genius to work or die trying, is a myth that many take as a given, unaware that it too is a product of history and a particular culture's image of itself. That faith in genius has slipped into many places we never expected to find it. It's all over the tech press and sports journalism as much as art world publications. It convinces us that there is something that some people just have that the rest of us can't, no matter how hard we work. It elides the real skills that some have worked for, and it often, in fact, takes credit for other people's work. And of course, those expectations of the artist have shaped a whole series of jobs that are in industries now that make a whole lot of profits, from television and film to computer programming or even, you know, sports. If the work itself is fun, then you won't mind doing it for cheap or even for free, you know, for experience, for exposure. And you better look grateful, because there are always others who are coming for your very cool job. And insight number five, because I'm sure I've depressed you all now. How do we change all of this? The way to change all of this is to organize. A lot of people expect my book to give them advice on how to personally achieve better work-life balance, but that's not really what I'm here for. Instead, what I bring you in this book is stories of how working people have changed their conditions, from the centuries-long movement for shorter working hours, fighting for the 12-hour day, then the 10-hour day, then the 8-hour day, the 5-day week, you know, the people who brought you the weekend, the labor movement, to the video game programmers who have formed the world's first union for programmers, and all sorts of people in between. From teachers to unpaid interns, workers have simply refused to work, they've, you know, gone on strike, and demanded better pay, better conditions, and lightened workloads. The workers I wrote about in this book have pushed back against the idea that their work should be provided solely out of love, though many of them still do genuinely enjoy their work. They have discovered the pleasures that are to be found in rebellion, in collective action, in solidarity, standing shoulder to shoulder on the picket line, carving out spaces and time to be with other working people and to change the conditions under which they work. 
They are laying claim to their time, very importantly, and also to their hearts and minds outside of the workplace, saying that there are other things that they love more than work. And you can't do this by yourself. It only works if you get together. The more of you there are, the more power you have on the job and everywhere else. Thanks for listening. I hope you check out the book for much more. Thank you, Sarah, for those important insights. On the Next Big Idea app, we have book bites from a wide range of authors who offer tips for work-life balance. But Sarah is arguing for something bigger and more structural, that only through collective action can we make work better for everyone. And that's certainly a goal we're shooting for. If you want to learn more about Sarah's work, visit sarahljaffe.com. That's spelled J-A-F-F-E, by the way. You should also check out her podcast. It's called Belabored. We'll be back with more great book bites on Monday. If you're not sure you can make it that long, head over to the Next Big Idea app where you can enjoy hundreds of book bites, conversations with our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Kane, and Daniel Pink, and other great content. Search for the Next Big Idea in your app store or follow the link in the episode notes. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. Have a great weekend, hopefully with your laptop closed. <laughs>